Hello and welcome to Britain Revisited, the show that takes a look at the important and influential figures and policies in the post-war era that forged the Britain that we know today. Now everyone's heard of Churchill and Thatcher, of Blair and Brexit, but this show, well it delves under the hood, it delves under the bonnet of Britain and takes a look at those which history haven't, for some reason or other, placed front and centre in our island's conscience and our island's story. So this week we're going to be discussing the national minimum wage and its implementation and Matt's going to take us through that. But first we're going to be looking at what's been in the news this week. Matt, what shall we talk about then? So this week we've had the the real beginning of the UK's vaccination efforts. So before this we had the authorisation of the Pfizer vaccine in December. But this this week's the first week where the AstraZeneca vaccines really got going and we're, uh, we're edging up to two million vaccines a week, which compared to elsewhere in Europe is off the charts in terms of success and it's in comparison with the USA's effort and only slightly behind the world leader that is Israel. Mm. So we've set ourselves a target haven't we? Boris has put us into a lockdown and said I'll let you out by mid-Feb if we can get 13 million people. Is it 13 million people vaccinated that yeah. uh-huh. are our most vulnerable and our, and our frontliners and get them done by mid-Feb is that right? Yeah that's that's correct. And so what that that's two million a week. So are we there yet? Because we've only just got to about 300,000 a day, which when you look at it as a standalone, I mean, I, I remember watching the news yesterday and it said we vaccinated more today than France have full stop. So we're doing a lot. But is it are we fast enough to reach that mid-Feb deadline, do you think? Yeah, so the question was always how quickly would it take for us to get up to two million a week? And um it took us about four or five days and we've already reached that. Now it's the question is, can we remain to that level? And um, there's no reason really to think that we can't, even though the Pfizer vaccine is getting delayed across Europe. We should have enough AstraZeneca now to plough on with two million a day, uh, two million a week and get to that target in the middle of Feb. And will, I dare I say the B word, but will Brexit affect us? Because you just mentioned the, the Pfizer holdup in Europe, countries like Latvia, Lithuania, Sweden, have, have said that the Pfizer vaccines simply haven't arrived. And with what we see scenes on TV of um, holdups at the border, are we getting a steady flow of um, vaccines to Britain from, from the continent? Yeah, there shouldn't be any trouble at all. And that's the, the Pfizer vaccines made in Belgium, I think it is. And essentially, they sort of have an extraordinary procedure to get them across to the UK. It's the case of if, if there's holdup at the borders, there's a mitigation plans in place to fly them in or however means possible we'll get them into the country and then the AstraZeneca vaccine is actually made in lots of it's made in Wrexham. Ah, how interesting and so that's good that we've got it here so it doesn't we don't need to go over any borders but can you foresee any obstacles or issues in the next few weeks trying to get to that mid-feb deadline that could put a spanner in the works? So we have like every manufacturing there's lots of issues that can be done in terms of bottlenecks or failures in the production line. Um, Pfizer's already said they're, they're falling behind. Luckily enough, we, we rely more on the AstraZeneca jab. Um, and then sort of the logistical challenge too. There's, there's been some murmurs of GPs not happy with the amount of vaccine they've got. But so far, so good, really. These are all teething issues that should be fine. But with the, the British system... We always assume the worst, I guess, after the testing failures and the testing trace failures. I suppose it is hardwired in us. And before we move on, 
Um, there was a bit of a hoo-ha uh, a week or so ago when we decided instead of giving a two-week delay between the first and second shot, we would increase that to 12 weeks to try and get as many people vaccinated as possible and get that partial immunity going. Do you see that being an issue or not? Um, so the AstraZeneca jab, it shouldn't be an issue. There's data to show that really the, the 10 to 12 week period is ideal. It creates the most immunity. So there's no real issue there. The Pfizer one is a little bit more circumspect. You have no real data that this is the optimum way to do it. But in an emergency, you need to adapt and be practical. And lots of scientists actually have come around to this view. When it was announced um, a few weeks ago, there was a bit of uproar. But actually, there's been a lot of persuading happen. And you see now people who did oppose it actually agree that in the circumstances with the new variant, with the so much uh, increase of the virus over the last month or so, people are actually saying this is the sensible, practical thing to do. So what you're saying is you boil it down quite literally, improvise, adapt, overcome. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So we'll be back after the break to discuss the national minimum wage. So we're discussing the national minimum wage. Now, Matt, before 1997, when it when the new Labour government came in and implemented it, am I right in thinking that you could just be paid anything for the job? There was no there was no bottom um, to it. What's the history behind how, where getting to the point in 1997 where it was policy? Yeah, you are correct. In 1996, for instance, there was a uh, Margaret Beckett when she was campaigning for this. Um, she always used the example of someone was asked to be. Uh, is it a, a night watchman, I think, and it was a pound an hour, 100 hours a week, and you had to provide your own guard dog, which, you know, you can't get more of an abusive contract than that, really. And this was in 1996? Yeah, exactly. It was, you know, a free-for-all, really, and especially in the rural parts where you have less competition. So it's quite astounding, really, that this was in, you know, 25 years ago, um, that this was the norm. And so why was... Why was it the norm for so long? Why why wasn't it changed? What what was the history behind it? Where where were the trade unions and all this? Yeah, so if we go if we go back to sort of pre-trade union times, there was a with the liberal movement in the second half of the nineteenth century, they called for a national minimum wage. It was actually Mark Aldroyd, who is in your constituency, Billy, actually in Dewsbury, the Liberal MP. Yeah, um, present. <laughs> he called for a national minimum wage. Uh, to the classic argument of the new liberals at the time was to ferment a greater moral purpose behind capitalism than simply money making and provide dig dignity to workers um, and they did enact in their is it 1905 1906 they got their huge majority government um, and it was part of the new liberal reforms at the time uh, they in introduced uh, a, an agricultural minimum wage and a wage council that allowed for collective bargaining in this sense but these two tools didn't really get much use um, because the trade unions after the Second World War, if you zoom forward a little bit, and of course they introduced sectoral bargaining. And that's really why a minimum wage in the in the middle of the 20th century wasn't particularly necessary because that was the job of the trade unions. And then this continues, of course, with big industry until 1979, Thatcher government, but also globalisation, the beginning of the transition between uh, a 
industrial economy to a sector services economy means that the trade unions just diminished in importance and there's lots of people became in a new economy the sort of supermarket assistants office workers cleaners these sort of things they didn't have a union so we actually regressed really in terms of inequality in the second half of the 20th century um, until the point in 1997 where as i said there was huge abuses really in some parts of the country and the new new Labour got elected in 1997 and the following year they they implemented the uh, national minimum wage so in the post-war era the to introduce a national minimum wage would that be sort of counterproductive when the role of the trade unions would be to fight for that would, would you say yeah trade unions actually didn't like the idea because they sort of saw it as encroaching on their job and they thought that would make an argument on behalf of the the, the neoliberal politicians that said trade unions were redundant because if you have a national minimum wage why on earth would you need a trade union to bargain so they saw it as a threat yeah, absolutely. They saw it as a threat yeah, to undercut them. As we move away from the industrialised economy, like you were saying, in the 80s and 90s, we actually fell fell quite some way in, in inequalities-wise. Yeah, you had huge amounts of inequality, of course, that's well known under under Thatcher. And, and that is basically because the trade unions lost their power and there was a huge separation in the pay increase for the richest i think the richest in the 20 years from 79 to 99 so in the 20 years preceding the national minimum wage the richest 10 percent had a 60 percent pay increase and the poorest 10 percent only around a 15 percent pay increase mm. and so where were the labor party or even the liberals in in this period of the post-industrial economy of the 80s and 90s was the discussion of introducing a national minimum wage on the agenda at all or was it not really until the 90s? Yeah, it was. Um, so in the beginning, you have sort of jealousy of the trade unions in the early 1980s saying, why do we need one? And this turned with of actually defeating the trade unions, really. And in 1985, the Labour Party conference passed a motion supporting the national minimum, minimum wage. Uh, and they thought the level should be at 66% of male median earnings, which is very similar to today's um, view of relative poverty which i think is 60 percent of the median wage right and so at that point did it then become part of the manifesto following so so it wasn't actually used in 1987 um but then in 1992 it did become part of their manifesto and it was at set at 50 percent, so slightly below the 66 percent, which was a very radical motion at the time at 50 percent of male earnings and this was attacked roundly because it didn't have academic backing, didn't have business backing. And it was a classic case of the sort of the Thatcherite Tory party at the time, of course, run by John Major. But it was, you know, do we want to go back to the 70s with huge pay increases and huge inflation? I see. So where did it go from 1992 to 1997 from being something that was attacked to something that many see as, you know, phenomenally good policy? Was it was it snuck in by the back door uh, in the sea change or, or, or what? No, I wouldn't say it was snuck in by the back door at all, actually. Um, so there, there was two things really in the 1990s that changed. First was academic research changed their opinion of uh, the national minimum wage. And you started seeing empirical studies that said, hang on a minute, even though sort of neoclassical economic models suggest that, you know, if you put a wage floor, this will be a loss of employment. 
they're saying the empirical studies, when you look at the real world, this doesn't seem to be the case. Um, and alongside this, Labour very intelligently and tactically said, let's not worry about what level the minimum wage will be as long as we win the argument of principle and establish a minimum wage, we can increase it later. The important thing is getting that national minimum wage in there. Right. And so what was that? Did they have a, an argument that they put forward then in, in the run up to the 1997 election about it? Yeah, they, they, they sort of had a, a threefold argument, I'd say. And it was firstly um, the classic approach that, you know, of Labour, which is look at how rich the boardroom chiefs are, look how poor the workers are. That's the obvious argument that you'd expect them to say to their members and to the public. A pretty timeless argument. Exactly. The second one is, again, quite a classic argument. It's a, it sort of sums up the new Labour approach. How do you shift rightwards and get more of the middle class voters on your side? And they, that was all about making work pay. So if you bring in a minimum wage, then you stop to reliance on welfare, you make work pay, and then the idea of you know welfare scroungers, if you had a minimum wage, they'd say, actually, I'd rather be paid X amount an hour than bringing my benefits, which is an argument, of course, targeted at the sort of classic Tory voter and really parking their tanks on Tory turf. And thirdly, they had an argument aimed at businesses. So this was aimed at the CBI that said, if you're a decent business who wants to pay your staff a decent wage and do business in a, in a morally correct way, you can't without a minimum wage because you'd be undercut by, you know, a cowboy businessman who will abuse their staff and they'll be able to set low prices and you'll be priced out of the market. So by setting a minimum wage, you allow businesses to have uh, a social responsibility that previously they wouldn't have been allowed. So it actually worked in the favour of businesses. Yeah, and you can see that with a U-turn that the CBI made from sort of being the the manufacturers of the attacks in 1992 on Labour, they actually supported the minimum wage come 1997. That is also, of course, because 1997 election was preordained. And I think the CBI thought they're better off backing new Labour and being on side with them than uh, attacking them when they know that they were going to be in government for a while. I see. And so we've looked at the proponents for it uh, and the argument that the Labour Party put forward, but it was opposed by the Conservative Party. And what were the main arguments against the introduction of a national minimum wage? What what, what did they put forward to say, no, we should not have a, a national minimum wage? Yeah, it's, it's the same argument that was fairly timeless. Employment, uh, you know, high the minimum wage put, you know, you cut business, uh, you cut businesses' profit. They won't be able to expand and employ more people. And they, they'd say that Labour essentially going back to the seventies, where you're pushing up pay, bringing in, and you'll have inflation, and you'll have unemployment, you'll have stagflation. That is what we fought for ten years to get rid of. Do you really want it to come back in with the the new Labour? And how popular was that? Was this argument? I think it did have an impact, but times change, don't they? And I think at 1990s, Britain was a, was an optimistic country, actually. They had good times, and I think they were bored of this argument. It's all a very conservative psychological argument, the idea that you need to be shrewd and mean to get your economy to work. And I think people were tired of that argument. And again, because there wasn't a, a set value of this national minimum wage, you know, it's hard to say that that's too much. How can you argue against someone who's arguing that people should be paid more than a pound an hour? 
Indeed. And so it, in 1998, they passed the National Minimum Wage Act. And what's it, what, is, what does it look like when it's implemented? Is it just a blanket national minimum wage or is it uh, scales? Um, so they set up a, a, a low pay commission, which had the CBI on. They had academics, they had trade unions and they did lots of research to set up what they think would be the optimal minimum wage. And that is to say, what's the highest minimum wage really we can have that won't hurt employment or business too much. And there's a, there's a minimum wage for over 25s and then for youngsters, because obviously youth unemployment will always be a big problem. So if you allow them to be paid a little bit less, then you make sure they're not harmed by unemployment either. And the key here was they said, we'll set it at, I think it was about £3.60, which even in 1998 money is not a lot of money. Um, so it was actually kind of taken on board by businesses and they were, there was not too many grumbles or complaints. Because it was so low, it sort of kept everyone on side. And so how has it changed since 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 1998? And what have been the major sort of... Um, changes to it um so you have uh, a fairly quick increase through uh the new labor time in government so that really stepped up a gear in 2001 when labor won their the second landslide 2007-2008 when of course with the recession unemployment becomes a lot bigger concern and then you have a, a steadier increase um from 2007 to 2013 really where it wasn't going anywhere and then in 2014 George Osborne took it upon himself to have this as a mainstream sort of sort of trying to shed the image of him as an austerity man and an introduction of national living wage, which has now gone on forwards. And we've had such low unemployment from 2014 to 2019 until the pandemic, of course, that this increase started becoming quite rapid until the target now is to get it to 60 percent of the median wage, which again is comes full circle back to the ambitious demand of the Labour Party conference in 1985, and now they want to abolish relative poverty in those who work, and that is the ultimate game, aim of the Conservative Party. If it that, I think, just shows how progressive this policy and how quickly it's moved to the mainstream. So maybe the hard left, the old left of the 1980s, will have the last laugh. And so let's just look at its implementation. What was the immediate reaction to it from the Conservative Party, from Haig and then moving on to Ian Duncan Smith and, and Howard? What, what After they see it working somewhat, when do they start to change their tune? Is it only with when um, Cameron and Osborne come in in 2005? No, so at the time, remember this is very much a, a Thatcherite party that has been roundly defeated so you have the immediate reaction as you always do with big defeats is to sort of um curl up and reject the outside and you have a a strong action against the policy and they fought tooth and nail against it um until a reborn michael portillo comes in as shadow chancellor returning to parliament after he won election the by-election to come back in parliament after he lost in the famous portillo moment of 1997 and in those years in the wilderness, he'd reformed his character from the sort of Thatcherite successor to now a more cosmopolitan, friendly, modernising Tory. And he, he famously made a U-turn on two Tory policies, one of which was the national minimum wage. And some think this was really to poke the eye of John Redwood for one and the right of the party. 
um, and to really assert himself as this conservative modernizer. Sadly, this didn't get him anywhere, as we know he's retired and now travels and trains for a living. Uh, and it becomes part of this more modern conservative party. And it becomes a main platform plank of the plans of David Cameron in 2005, as you said. And as I've mentioned, it becomes a, an important part of the conservative government after 2010. Well, he may not have managed to change his own fortunes, but he now, as you say, does appear on a train programme with a fantastic array of brightly coloured trousers. So, you know, it swings in roundabouts. And so can we just boil it down? Has it been a success? Yeah, it's been a wild success. So if you were to look at 1996, you'd have a low pay button. National minimum wage was fiercely opposed by um, the Conservatives and academics were sceptical of it. And now you have in 2021, it's used, UK's national minimum wage is used across the world as a policy example of how to implement a minimum wage as an example. It's used as an example of good policy, practical policy, bipartisan policy, bringing in all sectors of the community and as a, a practical way of implementing policy, not too ambitious, but experimental and empirically uh, focused. It's got broad consensus of parties. And importantly, it's been really successful in bringing up the pay of the poorest of society. So it has done what it has said on the tin. It has helped those at the bottom. Absolutely. It's been a, it's been a tremendous success. And just touching on the international, you spoke about other nations. What were the international reaction to that? Had countries had a minimum wage prior to this and did they then look at it as a template? Um, so lots of countries in Europe had a minimum wage at all sorts of different levels. It's quite hard to compare. So the UK in 1998 and 1999 was when the actual minimum wage was introduced. It was in the middle bracket, really. And because of the speed of its increase, it's now... The UK's up there with uh, the New Zealand's um, for how high it is. And people are saying, oh, the UK's meant to be this free market economy, and yet they have such a high national minimum wage. Why can't we? And in fact, it's it's really interesting seeing how much this has bled into the American debate at the moment about minimum wage, where people point to the UK as a great success story of the minimum wage. And it's something that in the last 20, 30 years, British policymakers should be really quite proud about it. Well, proud we should be. We'll be back right after the break to talk about the future of the national minimum wage. So let's talk about the future of the national minimum wage and sort of situate it within um, work and pensions and um, and the benefits and welfare system that we have today. So where do we see it going forward? You talked about George Osborne announcing the 60% of median earnings target and has has that been hit? Um, so it hasn't been hit yet but it is I think on course for the end of parliament with the sort of pandemic permitting you know the economic effects but it sh we should we should definitely get there and that'd be a great triumph for for Britain it will be I think that leaves us second in the OECD for national national minimum wage. Right and who are we eyeing up who's in the top spot in New Zealand? I think it is New Zealand yeah uh, they seem to be doing everything right in New Zealand. <laughs> um, but I, I tell you what is interesting, um, and that probably wasn't out on the minds of policymakers in the 80s and 90s, is the the regional differences that we have today. So I remember when I started looking for 
for post-education jobs of which there has been no success yet <laughs> the, um, some of them said the London living wage I was like what's London living wage isn't that just the national minimum wage so can you talk to me a bit about that and and how that might strain the minimum then what what the the raison d'etre of the national minimum wage yeah definitely um so this is interesting because in 2007, actually, Gordon Brown sort of toyed with the idea of maybe having regional pay boards rather than a national one. And the reason for this is twofold. Firstly, the strain on employment. And secondly, living standards, the cost of living. Um, so in London, for instance, the cost of living, as we all know, is a lot more. But also businesses should be able to afford to pay more because the price of stuff's more. Um, and it's a similar story, but opposite in the likes of Cornwall in the northeast and more rural parts where um, the cost of living is a lot less, but also businesses can they afford to pay staff that much. So then you're saying, is there an effect on employment in sort of the agricultural sector or maybe the hospitality sector in Cornwall, for instance? Right. And how far did Gordon Brown get with with that? Well, not very far because it never happened. <laughs> But uh, in terms of London and the London living wage, the story behind that, I think, is it all revolved around the 2012 London Olympics where staff were being paid. Obviously, you need lots of logistical work and sort of all the people that this is targeted at. And they simply, lots of people think, weren't getting paid enough. So there was an organisation to create the London living wage and lobbying individually. This is separate to government for businesses to take it up, really, just as a bit of good PR for them and social responsibility. So, it, so this London living wage is it um, enshrined in law, or is it just sort of a look at us? We're a good company. We do the London living wage. Yeah, definitely the latter. It's not enshrined in law, but lots of firms are picking up on it, and definitely in sort of the internship fields, especially because people who are interns usually have their voice loudly heard on social media, etc. Yeah, and so do you see in the future? Do you envisage maybe the London living wage being 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 enshrined in law? Because, I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, I don't really see how that how well that will play down with those outside of London. Say you're in Bolton and you're um, on the minimum wage and you see that London gets a better minimum wage than you. That's just going to breed more regional hostility, surely. That's interesting because I sort of thought of it maybe as the other way where the Conservative government, could use it as an example of them levelling up the economy by saying, you know, we're going to make sure we'll give the the southwest and the northeast a competitive advantage by allowing businesses to pay a lower wage, um, and then you know businesses will move there. Um, but it's also interesting in terms of with teleworking now, can you have a regional minimum wage? Because where where would it be where the employer works from home, or would you do it where the business is based? you know it becomes a lot more difficult you see that's true as well and i suppose going back to the conservatives and their new sort of red wall how how that plays with them they've got to decide really and then what are they there for the small businesses or the the working class and can they straddle that um sort of divide yeah definitely because you know lots of small business owners in the in the southwest the northeast and other parts of you know north wales east of england lots of places have a a lower cost of living. Um, small business owners are saying, you know, how on earth are we going to afford to pay the minimum wage when it comes to 2024? They just don't see how it's possible. And of course, it's not healthy for any economy, any regional economy, if shops are closing because they can't afford to 
to align themselves. Mm. And so where do we think, where does Labour sit on all this? Are they, what, what, are, what are their thoughts? You know, this new Shadow Chancellor, Annalise Dodds, she's been noted, a, she did a speech of the day and sort of trying to forge a new route for Labour's economic policies. So where do you think this would fit in with them? Yeah, I think yeah, it really is bipartisan support for this minimum wage. And that's why it hasn't been a huge debating issue over the last two or three elections. I think the focus of the Labour Party in terms of how they benefit the poor is through universal benefit increases and public sector pay increases too. Right. And I think more than anything, you know, the pandemic's really thrown a stick of dynamite at every policy going. So what, in the aftermath of it, do you think it's going to change? Do you think we're going to have to, because, you know, given the extraordinary amount of spending during the pandemic, we're going to have to tighten our belts at some point or so, commentators think. So will the national minimum wage be be prepped for victim to that? Or is it a bit of a, is it, a, you know, is it a, is it a, a holy cow? Well, the genius of the national minimum wage for the Conservative Party is, of course, the state deficit has nothing to do with uh, the minimum wage. It's redistribution of wealth through private means because uh, the money never sees the, the chancellor. It goes from the business and then the business's profits. They take it out of their, their revenue to pay their staff. So the Tories love it because they can still have their small state while saying they're socially responsible, ensuring those who work hard get paid for. Uh, I see that's a good point and so obviously they'll look to other areas to cut their expenditure so where does that sit when you've got a, a, a really you know world that is envy of a national minimum wage and yet what many would perceive as quite a stripped back welfare state? Yeah so this is sort of uh, the Ian Duncan Smith version of welfare in Britain where you make sure those who work hard get paid well and those who don't work, you sort of say, well, we're not going to be too kind to you. And that might be OK if you have lots of scroungers on the benefit system, but there's no actual evidence for this, really. And then, you know, Labour would question why, why on earth would you punish those who can't work? Surely you shouldn't be punished if you can't work. If you can't work, you can't work. <laughs> exactly. And so, like, last week, you saw that furor over those disgraceful food boxes um is that sort of emblematic of the discussions that are going to come to the fore yeah i think that's going to be a, a labor attack line really is they'll have to reorient themselves um and i think they'll orientate towards more of uh, the old labor slogan the uh from each according to their ability to each according to their need and talk about the needy a lot more because I'm not sure how much the national minimum wage helps the really needy of society. Yeah, because at the end of the day, we are in a low productivity economy. So it's quite interesting why it's heralded as so good and yet juxtaposed with 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 that. Yeah, so how can we still have wide inequality and we have we have still a really low productive economy? Surely, you know, the more labour costs, businesses would invest in capital and in capital, in human capital too, and we'd boost productivity. So so why isn't that the case? Is the minimum wage too low or is it is it just suboptimal to sectoral bargaining? So if you have a high floor, a wage floor, should they all jobs have the same wage floor? So, you know, maybe 
um this might help some industries and some industries it doesn't help and they're getting underpaid so for instance uh, nurses and care home workers they get paid around national minimum wage or just above it but is that fair if you, if your job's that maybe they should have a trade union that fights and they get sectoral, sectoral bargaining power so the national minimum wage is sort of a one uh, one size fits all and it doesn't maybe maybe you need a more nuanced approach in the future towards sectoral bargaining and a more holistic approach about how to increase the pay of people in the bottom half of the earners so it's coming under strain quite clearly and it's only been in for 23 years now but i'm just thinking if this sectoral approach is successful sure that's going to just sort of rip it apart at the seams and the underpinning of it in the first place will it not breed hostility from sector to sector and will it not then account for you know who's the better who's got the best representatives yeah exactly so if you think in the post immediate post-war economy there's no need for a minimum wage because trade unions would do sectoral bargaining if you have sectoral bargaining does that make the minimum wage redundant and i think it's a fair question but i don't think that's particularly true because a wage floor is a wage floor if trade unions manage to bargain above that all well to them but to those who don't have a trade union or you know their trade union doesn't have much power or whatever it is you still need a wage floor if you want the toy promise which is essentially if you work full-time you won't be in poverty and that's the promise toys want to give you and if you really want to keep that promise you need to have a national minimum wage that pays fair wages i see and so i suppose you can still keep it uh, along that argument you can still keep it but just with add-ons and, and and topping it up um but still have that underpinning it um still there and so i suppose of all the new labor policies is this the most successful would you say yeah for sure i think if you look and that's really the, the greatness of this policy is in 1992 it was roundly rejected and it seemed completely counterintuitive to the economic thinking of the time we were in the ascendancy the heyday of neoliberalism um thatcherism why on earth would people vote if they voted for thatcher three times and they're just voting again for another tory government why on earth would they vote for a national minimum wage and yet intelligent tactical thinking academic work bringing all sides on board meant they could put in place this which was against the waves of the time and really embed it into the economy structurally and institutionally that it didn't go away that it always didn't sweep away sweep it apart in 2010 but kept it and it's a real intelligent way for governments that should look at if you want to leave a legacy look at how they've done this national minimum wage and it's and it's really quite clever how now it seems a mainstay and it seems impossible for any government to even think of getting rid of it i suppose it is testament to the policy itself that you know it's forced other parties to u-turn in on themselves rather than um reject it outright so it's testament to that and am i right in thinking that there was a poll in the institute for government in 2010 um that said it was the most successful policy of the last 30 years yeah exactly they you know the experts thought it was and i i think i agree with them in terms of like it's not really too zero sum uh the people who lose out are people who were taking profits instead of paying their workers because it hasn't pushed up prices it hasn't uh, increased unemployment it's just been a good policy that takes money from the richest of society and gives it to the poorest
I suppose, you know, there are not going to be many people crying tears and crying to sleep at night over the the, the loss of cowboy <laughs> um, employers, is there? Exactly. So if, if when that happens, it sort of defeats the the myth that there's perfect profits in the economy and they, they couldn't possibly pay their workers more. They were forced to pay their workers more and they didn't increase prices. So once that myth collapses, then it's really hard to argue against a minimum wage. Indeed. So I suppose to tie it up nicely, um, the MP for my area, Mark Aldroyd, back in the late 19th century, early 20th century, was right to call for a national minimum wage. Exactly. It has come full circle, as I mentioned, from him to the 1985 Labour conference with our ambitious target of 66% of male median earnings. And now George Osborne himself called for it. It will be reality soon, hopefully. And as it gets such broad support from all across the aisle, it's um, well done, basically. (laughs) So that concludes um, this week's show on the national minimum wage. Matt, thank you for informing uh, us all about such such an important policy, really. Thank you very much, Billy. See you all next week.